Hello, my name's Dom, and this is your guide to making it through med school. It's Redwood Ramblings. Hello, you've made it to Redwood Ramblings. Today, we're going to be talking about how to take a sexual health history. Welcome once again. Thank you for tuning in to Redwood Ramblings. Just a reminder, if you've got any suggestions, corrections, anything you want to say, anything you want us to cover, then please email in to redwoodramblings at gmail.com. We have had a couple of emails and we will be recording episodes that have been requested as soon as we possibly can. Furthermore, one of our new features, which is going to be featuring your mnemonics, your songs, whatever it is that helps you remember a certain subject or a certain number of symptoms of a disease, whatever it is, then we want to hear from you. You can email them in or you can get one of our CTFs to record it and we'll get you on the podcast that way round. That feature will be starting on the next episode. Let's get on with today's podcast. I'm here today with Rachel. Hello. Hi again. How are you? I'm good. How are you? All right. I should say Dr. Rachel Hughes. Thank you. My my, my proper my proper terminology. No, Rachel's fine. <laughs> it's grand. Uh, first things first, Rachel. Um, what did you have for dinner last night? Moussaka. It was delicious. Homemade? No, actually. I went to, um, what's it called? There's like a Turkish restaurant in Cheltenham. Would heavily recommend. And there was such a big portion I had left over, so I brought it home for lunch today as well. It was delicious. That does sound good. It's lovely. Okay, Rachel. Today, what are we covering? We're going to talk a little bit about taking a sexual health history. A little bit different. Good, yeah. So this is probably going to be aimed at students who are looking at their OSCEs, worried about a few things. Sometimes we don't cover sexual health histories in too much detail. You don't necessarily get an opportunity to practice these. No, and it's quite. Some people can find it quite hard to ask such kind of delicate questions sometimes. So I think it's just really being really open and honest and kind, and you'll be grand. Good. Um, I think before we start, you wanted to have say a couple of words, didn't you? Yeah, I think everyone has their own sort of experiences that might be a little bit triggering from this and we might quickly mention things like sexual assault maybe terminations if anyone doesn't want to listen i will absolutely not be offended and obviously we can talk about like support systems and things afterwards if people need it for themselves for a friend or for any of their patients so we can talk about that as well thank you rachel we've got a student they have got to go and do a sexual health history it says it on the door they're stood at their oski they think oh gosh going to do a sexual health history um, I think the first thing they're going to do, though, is walk into that room, they're going to wash their hands and they're going to introduce themselves. I'd hope so, yeah. I think it's always nice to introduce yourself, say why you're there. I'm not just a randomer who's walked into your clinic room. And making sure that you identify your patient, ask them their name, ask them what they would like to go by. Or notice maybe people identify with a different name or a different gender than they might have on the system, okay? Yeah, that's always important to remember, isn't it? What sort of questions are we opening this consultation with? Everyone's scared when they come to a sexual health clinic. I think the first few minutes when you're walking in, I would reassure them that it's a safe space. It's completely confidential. Sometimes even show them that even our patient stickers don't have names. Their number is completely made up and not related to their hostel number. And I think just really setting that this is a safe space they can talk about really quite delicate things 
it's not going to go out this room unless I'm worried about you. And then just broadly asking what's brought them in today. How are we approaching this history then? Is it the same as a normal history? We're talking about a, a, a presenting complaint and we're going to ask some questions around the history of presenting complaint? Yeah, absolutely. So they'd come in and talk about what they've noticed at home that's brought them in to the sexual health clinic. But it could be various things. We could kind of split it up into sort of two main areas. Again, when we're trying to think about gender and being inclusive, I would try and think a bit more for those who are presenting who have a vagina or female reproductive organs or those who present with a penis or male reproductive organs. We kind of work it from that way and make sure we don't miss anything, really. When we have someone presenting with a vagina or female reproductive organs, we can have a little think about if they present with anything like abdominal or pelvic pain. Um, you're going to do the same sort of thing you do in any sort of pain history. So you're going to remember your Socrates. We always love a bit of Socrates, don't we? Of course. Absolutely. I think it's important, specifically if it's like um, dyspareunia or any pain during sex, whether it's more of like a superficial discomfort or whether it's like a deep pain can be quite important. Is it a cyclical pain that comes on at some point during their menstrual cycle? Have Is there any risk they could be pregnant? Is this like an ectopic pregnancy? There's so many things that could cause these sort of symptoms that we need to be aware of and think about in these patients. What if it's not pain? What other presentations might we see from uh, patients who have got um, a vagina or female reproductive organs? So again, it could be maybe a change in their bleeding. Maybe they've got um, a longer gap since their last period. Maybe they're bleeding a bit more heavily, a bit more regularly. You go into a really nice menstrual history. So again, you're trying to figure out when their last period started. So that's your day one of your cycle. And then find out the gap between the day ones of their periods. And then finding how long they actually bleed for usually. And then compare it to what this new change that they've noticed in their cycle is. Okay, so it's similar to sort of a bowel history. Yeah. But we're finding out what's normal for them and then why this is different. Yeah, absolutely. Another thing could be changes in maybe discharge, so vaginal discharge. Is there a change in colour? Maybe the volume's gone up quite a lot. Maybe there's a change in sort of smell to the discharge. This tends to be, it can be quite embarrassing for the patient. So again, just be quite reassuring and just kind, really. Do you think sometimes it's quite helpful to be quite blunt and make sure you're asking those direct questions at these points? I think you have to be really open. And I think if you use really open language, the patient is a bit more receptive and probably... I think it does create a bit more of a free-flowing conversation where they're able to give up more details. And I think it feels a little less embarrassing when you can tell that I'm not embarrassed about asking you these questions, if that makes sense. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Because it's just, it's, it's just part of health. Okay, so what other things might we think about in this patient group? It could be any skin changes. So have they noticed any like itching down below? Have they noticed any sort of rashes or skin lesions? It could be that maybe they've got like a genital wart where it's not actually itchy, but they've noticed little raised bumps around their vagina or around their anus. Could be more systemic even. So have they noticed in themselves during this time, maybe they're a bit more tired. Maybe if they've got lots of bleeding, they've become a bit more anemic. It could be that they've noticed a change in their weight or a fever. They've got some of quite profuse discharge who might also have quite a lot of abdominal pain and a fever maybe we're thinking like a PID patient especially if they've got a history of like a recent STI or an exposure to someone who has a positive STI result okay so we're going to use sort of our review of systems yeah. at this point maybe to make sure have they been feeling well in themselves generally fatigue as you mentioned fevers weight loss we're also going to be asking about okay so there is a lot of similarities to just a normal history here isn't there we love a systemic inquiry. <laughs> okay, and then 
related to that, I suppose we'd ask them the past medical history. Yeah, so many sort of other medical conditions they might have. Things like diabetes can make you quite prone to things like thrush, so it's obviously quite important to ask about it. I'd also ask about any like past gynecological history, if they had any surgeries, maybe have they been pregnant before or any risk they could be pregnant now. You go into like gravity and parity and see how many times they've been pregnant before. Did it result in live births or if there was any terminations in the past? Okay, we're going to race over to our Redwood Riddler for this week's riddle. Hello, I am Harry, the Redwood Riddler. You may have seen some of my work up on the notice board in Redwood. I am here on the podcast to deliver further riddle to you. Redwood Riddler, what is your riddle today? What tastes better than it smells? Thank you, Redwood Riddler. Simple. What tastes better than it smells? And then if we're thinking about our other patient groups, so those who present with um, male reproductive organs, it's a little bit different, some things we don't need to ask about. We could think, they could present with things like testicular pain, swelling, um, we all know about our hydrocele's, epididymitis, that sort of thing. It tends to be really quite painful. If you've got like a young man with really acute onset severe pain, you might be worried about that, like testicular torsion. I'd hope they'd be seen quite quickly. And I'd hopefully, if, it, if we were worried about that, we'd try and get them to ED as soon as we can because we're trying to salvage or save that testes, really. Okay, so that's quite a... I mean, that's a medical emergency or a surgical emergency. Absolutely. We need to get them down to A&E. If you're in the sexual health clinic, that's probably the wrong place for them at that moment. Yeah, I'd be rushing them. <laughs> I'd probably try and see them first. Okay. So testicular pain, we can use our Socrates again. Yep. We could, again, similar sort of things. So they notice any rashes, any itching anywhere. And we can ask about whether any lesions on the skin are painful or not. Things like genital warts, painless, little raised lumps. Could be like a single painless ulcer which is a little bit of a red flag for things like syphilis. That could be a chancre. Or do they have multiple little painful lesions? Is that a herpes? So it's really useful to ask about a number of lesions. What do they look like? Are they raised? Are they painful? Okay, that's a really useful bit of knowledge. What else are this group, patient group being asked? I was thinking, actually, for all of our patients, do they have any pain when they're weeing? It usually signifies in those of male reproductive organs it could be something like a chlamydia or a trichomonas something like that where they have really painful urination so you might think again like a urine sample from these patients okay and again we love our systemic inquiries so again please ask them about any fever weight loss or fatigue and do men get discharged they do they do and i think they're usually the most anxious patients when they come in because i think they've heard horror stories about what the testing is like and i want to reassure you if you do have symptoms it is not as scary as you think they just take a little sample of discharge right from the urethromiatus and then take it for microscopy not scary doesn't sound scary to me okay so that's our two patient groups yeah and we've sort of covered a couple of things that we might ask both patient groups as well mm. things like asking specific specificities about the lesions mm. what other things might be shared across these two groups so we need to find out what kind of sex these patients have had basically you want to know the last time they had a sexual encounter with potentially each partner so you could be having regular sex with the same partner but i only really need to know when the last time you had 
a risk of exposure really if that makes sense and when you say risk of exposure that could be for an infection maybe i'm worried about maybe you had unprotected sex and you are of female reproductive organs or we think about trying to prevent a pregnancy that sort of thing the way i would word it is probably asking when was the last time you had sex go into exploring that partner and that interaction and asking we know about this partner when was the last time you had sex with someone different and that tends to just make it a little bit less inflammatory potentially okay and when we're talking about um sexual partners and sex is there any other questions we need to be asking you should be asking if it's consensual making sure that the patient's safe if they're worried about anyone that could harm our patients and trying to think of a plan potentially if they're not safe at home and what we can do later on we want to ask if it is a regular sexual partner maybe it's like a casual encounter um and asking sort of about patient demographics or partner demographics sorry we're asking where are they coming from are they born in the uk are they from outside and thinking about potentially are they from an area with a higher risk of transmission of different infections really okay when we use the word sex i think we understand that we're talking about all types of sex but patients sometimes think we're just talking about penetrative sex yeah right. absolutely so sometimes we need to be a bit more specific and be asking are we talking about oral sex what other types of sex do we need to be specifically asking about so i think about is it oral sex is it like a penetrative sex so that could be vaginal or anal sex mm-hmm. and when we've got any sort of penetration we're thinking about are they receiving or are they giving or insertive or receptive partner is what they usually say it. I would document it like that, but pa- patients don't usually kind of understand or use the terminology receptive and insertive partner. So you might use more colloquial language if you can't see that they're, if you can see they're not quite understanding you. So are you giving or taking? Are you top or bottom? I think helps the patient feel a bit more comfortable talking about it with okay. you. Yeah. I think another important thing is establishing if there's a risk of um, pregnancy asking about what contraceptions they're on. So it could be that they're just using like a barrier method, like a condom. Maybe they've got like a long-acting contraception, so things like coils, injections. Make sure you're asking when they were placed and when they're due to be refitted. Some people kind of think fit and forget, and then they realise, oh, actually, I'm right at the end of my coil. Am I actually protected? Or are they using things like pills that could be missed? Maybe they've had diarrhoea and haven't really absorbed it, and just asking all those really itty-bitty questions, really. Okay. And obviously we're ruling out whether they're at high risk of um, sexually transmitted disease and infections or whether they're using barrier contraceptives that might put them at a lower risk. Yeah, we'd hope so. I would ask again if they'd seen the condom. Are they sure that there was no risk of it snapping or anything? Did you use a condom every time you had sex? Because some people are naughty. (laughs) And just, yeah, being really open about it, really. Thank you, Rachel. Let's take this opportunity to revisit our riddle uh, from earlier in the episode, which was, what tastes better than it smells? Wow, I love that theme tune. The answer is your tongue. Well, that Redwood Riddler's getting a little cheeky, isn't he? Thank you very much. I think a few of us might have been able to get that one at home. What tastes better than it smells? Your tongue, of course. Okay, so where are we moving on with our um, history? I think, um, you know, you've asked about this one partner. 
I think the way I always used to do it when I was working in a sexual health clinic, can you guess? I would kind of ask about the three most recent sexual partners they have. It doesn't really matter what kind of window period that was, but it gives us a good idea. For example, if you've got contact tracing, who to kind of look out for. If, for example, they might have had more than three partners in the last three months, I would try to establish the total partners they've had in the last three months. We've got a good idea of who might have been exposed and thinking about like window periods or different infections. Okay. Three months is quite, it's quite commonly used because all of our common infections kind of come in within this window. Things like chlamydia gonorrhea, you'd expect to tip to about two weeks after encounter. Things like HIV can be as early as six and a half weeks. And uh, syphilis can be about two to three months after exposure. So that's why we're really looking at that period from who could have possibly passed this on, really. Okay. And do we need to be more specific about HIV? Yeah, I think it's important to ask where each partner is from. Maybe looking into risk factors for HIV. Historically, it was men who have sex with men. We're kind of opening that up now to anyone who really receives unprotective anal sex. It could be maybe that you've got someone who uses IV drugs. It could be people that maybe are commercial sex workers and might want to protect themselves from any risk at work, really. Anyone that I'm worried has a higher risk of transmission, I would probably consider things like PrEP, or if they have a risk of already being exposed, things like PEP. So it's something to kind of think about when you're taking your history. And our students will know about PrEP and PEP. What's the difference? So pre-exposure prophylaxis is our PrEP. So that's what we can take either every day or just before exposures to try and prevent us from catching HIV from someone who has it. Or you can have post-exposure prophylaxis, which is PEP. So that's after you've had sex, you've realised, oh, actually, my partner shared that they are HIV positive and I don't want to catch it. And you can actually take it to try and prevent you, well, prevent transmission, really. I understand. Okay. So, Rachel, what about young people? Young people. I think we need to think a little bit about do they have capacity to make decisions for investigations or certain treatments so if we've got like an under 16 year old there's two things we can kind of think about i don't know if anyone's heard of um gillick's competence and the fraser guidelines gillick's competence are a bit more broad it's whether people under 16 are deemed to have the capacity to make decisions for their own care and fraser guidelines are a bit more specific to things like contraception sexual health advice and treatment you'd have a discussion with the child or the young person see whether you think personally as a doctor that they are capable of making these decisions if they're not we need to figure out who we need to involve in these conversations to make sure we're doing the best for that patient does that make sense yes yeah yeah once we've got to this point do we need to be more general in our history is there anything else we want to be asking about yeah so we thought about you know, any medical conditions that your patient might have. You might want to ask a little bit about their drug history or any medications that could, again, make them more prone to certain infections or make them more prone to things like thrush again. You might want to ask about any allergies to any medications, especially things like antibiotics, where we know we might be using them. We want to know what sort of reaction, because if that's the only antibiotic that shows to be responsive to whatever you have, I'm going to weigh up whether a little rash is worth it if that's anaphylactic, I need to figure out what else I'm going to do, if that makes sense. You might look into immunisations, particularly our patients who might have like a higher risk of transmission of certain things. So again, our men who have sex with men, they're eligible for things like hepatitis A and hepatitis B vaccinations. 
And if you're under 45, you also get Gardasil on the NHS. That's to prevent you from like HPV. Because most women are were given Gardasil from age 13. But now we're slowly introducing younger men around 13. But there is still a kind of that lower or middle-aged men who we could definitely treat and prevent things from HPV. So we've done our presenting complaint, history of presenting complaint. We've done our past medical history, our drug history. We've got our social history left, and I suspect that's quite important for a lot of these patients. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's a good idea in all of these patients to get a good idea of what their home life is. So are they living alone? Do they live with anyone? Do they live with a partner? Are they safe at home? A lot of patients we need to think about is there any risk of like domestic violence potentially and making sure that they've got some support network for these vulnerable groups really. There, within each sexual health centre there is like a vulnerable adults or vulnerable children's team and they actually help look out for these patients and make sure that they've got someone to talk to and offer help if needed really. Is there any things we can notice, any red flags, anything, any triggers that we might pick up on that we need to maybe ask more questions about yeah there's certain things that kind of ring a little alarm in your head sometimes people are a bit hesitant to give up some details sometimes their partner might insist on trying to come into the room with you so I think you always have to be quite clear that I'll start my consultation alone with the patient and if they want to bring you in later that's completely fine especially being examined you might make you feel more comfortable but you need to need to note interactions between people. You can kind of tell like body language if they don't really want to, you know, undress for their examinations, they're covering bruises. Just these you can kind of feel when something's not quite right and trying to trust that gut instinct really. Is it appropriate for someone like me who identifies as a male to be taking a sexual history from someone who identifies as a female? Or is that something we need to be aware of? I think it's appropriate as long as the patient's comfortable with it. I think um, obviously people from like different, you know, cultures or backgrounds might be a bit more uncomfortable with like a, someone of the opposite gender or sex from you. A lot of clinics will actually ask you beforehand if you're comfortable seeing someone of a different gender just to make sure that they don't turn up and then feel kind of pressured in any way to see someone that they don't feel comfortable with. I think really for any sort of sexual health history and particularly examination, you should have a chaperone at all times just to make sure that the patient always feels that there's someone there advocating for them and will step in potentially if they think it's inappropriate. Okay. As with all our social histories, we're going to ask about smoking. Yes. Alcohol. Yes. Recreational drug use. Yes, chemsex. We have to think about chemsex. Really important. So what's chemsex? Chemsex is quite popular in certain groups and it's when they take some substances to kind of enhance their sexual experience it can be quite can be quite innocent but there is like a certain group that do take it so far where they don't even enjoy sex without taking these substances and that can be quite dangerous in terms of risk-taking behavior or potentially being taken advantage of for other people so it's important to kind of establish their drug use i think and of course we want to ask their occupation yeah some occupations might have higher risk um, risk-taking behaviours. Yeah, could be a sex worker and they just want to make sure that they're as safe as they can be. Mm-hmm. It's important. You might want to, if they're potentially like a, a medical professional, maybe they've got like occupational exposure to things like hepatitis and things or HIV, so we have to think about that as well. Yeah. Spending long times away in different parts of the world. Yes, travel history. You can tell, especially people, you know, just back from a holiday, that's fine. We can absolutely make sure you're all clean. That's all good. 
It is now that time for... That word's that for what? Is it because it's Latin? Why's that word called that word? It's Dometymology. Today we are going to be finding out about the etymology of herpes. Hopefully you will all remember that herpes viruses are a large family of viruses that can cause all sorts of infections in adults, children, all of our population in medicine. Herpes comes from a Greek word which means to creep or creeping and it was des described in lots of uh, Greek textbooks when talking about different diseases. Lots of diseases were described as creeping diseases and it's thought that actually the herpes or the varicella zoster virus which as we, as we know follows the nerve roots and spreads along the nerve roots cutaneously is thought to sort of picked up this this use of the term herpes which means creeping now interestingly herps is a word to use to describe amphibians and reptiles and that comes from a similar stem which means a creeping animal maybe not so interesting to you as it is to me that word's that for what is it because it's latin what's that word called that word it's dometymology so we've kind of asked a lot of the big questions that we need to think of. And I think we need to summarise everything that they've told us and think about an appropriate sort of list of differentials and how we kind of manage that. I don't think it'd be unfair in an OSCE for them maybe to ask about your top differentials and like a couple management or investigations that they think would be appropriate. So to try and kind of have that kind of process in our minds when we're thinking about OSCEs, I think it'd be like quite nice to talk through how we might approach a sexual health patient and what's next. Does that sound fair? So we've, we need to consider what investigations we might need. If they're asymptomatic, it could just be a urine test, could be a blood test, and it could be like a self-done vaginal swab for patients with vaginas. And if they have symptoms, they might need an internal examination, so you'd get your chaperones again. Or it could be taking samples from microscopy, which you could then go look under directly and hopefully treat them on the same day and get them home, which is quite nice. That's the really amazing thing about the sexual health clinic, isn't it? You can get some answers to your some of your bacterial causes. Yeah, absolutely. And and use antibiotics there and then. Some of them are just single dose antibiotics and you can send them on their way. Yeah. If they're not out of their window periods, we have to bring them back for some more tests once they are. They might need to come back for like a test of cures, though not all of them do need test of cures, so don't get too worried if they don't ring you back again. You could have a little think about further prevention. So maybe talk a little bit about barrier methods for future use. If they need for ongoing contraception, it'd be useful to talk about that as well in your consultations. And also address any sort of safeguarding concerns, especially if you've got like an under 18 patient or any concerns about, you know, sexual assault or anything like that. And making sure we get them to the right services and right support groups. I see. All right, Rachel. So we've covered the sexual health consultation. Yeah. So some really important things there. I think some of the main things I'm going to take away from this are your openness. Yeah. The way you're going to approach the patient and make them feel comfortable with talking about all these things which they may find difficult to talk about. Yeah. Well, I think we're done. So, Rachel, if I may, there's just one thing left for you to do. Oh, okay. Let's say goodbye. See you soon.